0: What is up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to episode 23 of Star Wars Beneath Twin Suns, a massive breakdown podcast. We have a fantastic episode for you today. We're going to be talking about the incredible, incredible episode five or chapter five of Book of Boba Fett. Uh, wow. Just just a really, really tremendous episode. Uh, I've I watched this one. Uh, I watched this one the day it came out. And, uh, and I think I was talking about this with you on massive breakdowns. But usually I only do cardio one day a week at the gym. Mm-hmm. And it's the day that I'm watching the Book of Boba Fett. And I did cardio three days in a row at the gym and I watched it again each of the three days.
1: Yeah, it was it was really, really fun. And I think it's uh, it certainly has highlighted how fun the Mandalorian episodes are. Um, And, uh, you know, we there's there's a lot of backstory already set up. And this episode kind of builds on that and sets up a new direction for Mandalorian Which I think is maybe why some people uh, had some issues with it. It, It's setting up Mando's uh, season three while tying him in to Boba Fett and, you know, kind of setting up that there will be some continued interaction with characters in the Star Wars universe, possibly across different shows. But I think uh, a lot of people who really loved The Mandalorian and just do not enjoy Boba Fett for them the, this seems to have been the worst of both worlds and that's really unfortunate because i think it was a great piece of star wars and uh i i wish that wish that everyone could just sit back and enjoy it and not not get so worked up
0: yeah and we'll definitely touch on that let's go ahead and get the housekeeping the minor housekeeping that we do on many twin sons out of the way as always thank you to our patrons without our patrons this podcast would not be possible uh and thank you to the people who left us reviews this week. I believe I this person left left us a review on Destiny Massive Breakdowns as well. And I'm still not sure how to pronounce the name. I think it's Adam L, but it might be Admiral L based on uh based on how they shorten the word. Uh so either one, thank you very much for leaving us a review. Yes. Guys, please, if you want to support the show, uh the best way to support support Beneath Twin Sons is to leave us a review on Apple Podcast or a rating on Spotify. Uh, or just a rating on Apple podcast either one helps us out a lot with discoverability uh so thank you very much to the people who do that and that is it <laughs> 30 seconds basically of housekeeping compared to 10 minutes on destiny massive breakdowns but we like to keep things shorter on this show yep um yeah the elephant in the room for for chapter 5 has really been that uh, there's a whole host of people coming out of the woodwork. Uh, Phaeton's girlfriend in Discord is an example of this. Everything <laughs> that is wrong with the Star Wars community, they somehow hate this. They somehow hate this episode because Boba Fett isn't in it. After having complained about Boba Fett for the previous four episodes, we now have a fantastic episode that doesn't have Boba Fett in it, and they're like, "I signed up to watch Boba Fett, not the Mandalorian." <laughs> do you,
1: do, does this seem like a ridiculous criticism to you? It's it's definitely. Confusing to me. Like, I don't know. I, I mean, I signed up to watch some fun Star Wars. And if they want to take an aside and talk about different characters, I mean, it's not like there are no characters from Boba Fett in it, right? We tie it in at the end. And they're clearly attempting to catch us up on what Mando's been up to as they bring him into the episode so that he doesn't just show up with a new ship and no explanation. Because that would be bad, right? Because people watching Boba Fett clearly need everything explained to them. This episode takes the time to explain what's been going on with Mando, and people are mad about it. I'm very confused about what they want at this point. What would make people happy with the Book of Boba Fett? I I just don't know anymore. I'm telling you, if Mando had just shown up with a new Starfighter and
0: nothing had been explained right like they hadn't explained how finnick got in contact with them they hadn't explained how he'd gotten the ship or how he'd gotten there people would have been like no why they didn't tell us how he found mando like that doesn't make any sense oh they could just reach out to mando across you know galaxies blah blah like they would have complained about him just showing up well now he shows up like you said with explanation and people i i I honestly wonder if some of the people that complain about this are not used to watching episodic TV, because what this complaint does to me is it mirrors a lot of the complaints we had from The Mandalorian, where they were like, that episode is just filler. That episode is just filler. It doesn't progress the main storyline of the series, right? I heard a lot of criticism that this killed the momentum of Boba Fett building an army. And I was like, first of all, do you understand how time works? Most of this took place concurrently with Boba Fett, like the Book of Boba Fett, Right. Like the only part that takes place after episode four, Book of Boba Fett was the part where Finnick comes to talk to him. Yeah. Everything else, the whole fight with the Darksaber, him seeing the armor, everything else that happened took place in the past. It didn't take place after the end of episode four. So there hasn't been like a three month window where Boba says, we need to build an army. And then it follows Mandalorian for three months. And then he still hasn't built an army. All that stuff took place at the same time. And part of me is like, do people not realize that that's how time works? They could tell two stories that took
1: place simultaneously. It, you know, uh, there was no text on screen, I suppose, that explained when things took place, right? That's, that's their bad. No. Uh, yeah, you gotta, you gotta use a little bit of, a little bit of common sense here to, to, to kind of string things together. And the second criticism is like, People are like, oh, I signed up to watch
0: Book of Boba Fett. I didn't want to see Mandalorian season three, episode one. Well, number one, Jon Favreau and the entire Lucasfilm group has basically outright said Book of Boba Fett is Mandalorian chapter 2.5. Like it's literally serves as a bridge between season two of Mandalorian and season three of Mandalorian. That has been explicitly said by Jon Favreau. I I posted those quotes on Twitter if you'd like to read them um, or I can repost them in the discord. So that's number one. So you kind of did sign up to watch Season three, episode one of The Mandalorian. Number two, I mean, shows sometimes focus on other characters. Like, this happens all the time. Star Trek The Next Generation did it with the episode Lower Decks. Clone Wars did it with Sunny Day in the Void and Clone Cadets and Arc Troopers. Like, it's not something that happens every single episode of a show. But sometimes characters that are not the main characters get introduced and it follows their story for a little bit. Like, imagine if Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi had not had any scenes that just had Lando Calrissian in them, right? They had only been allowed to have scenes with Lando Calrissian when he was with one of the main characters. Yeah. Like, that that would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? I, and, and part of me wonders is, like, did you not grow up on episodic t- episodic TV like TNG, like Clone Wars? Like, did you not grow up on this? All you have grown up on is being used to the condensed bingeable storylines that, like, Netflix puts out. Where it's or like Game of Thrones or something, even though Game of Thrones is probably a bad example because Game of Thrones had a hundred main characters and followed each of them individually. Yeah. But I, I feel like people have become obsessed with this idea that if it doesn't move the main storyline forward, it's a bad episode. And I just wholeheartedly disagree with that.
1: Yeah. So I mean, there are a million examples of this. Almost every TV show does this at some point. They take a minute and they follow a side character to flesh their story out. Uh, you know, even if you watch, um, gosh, I'm trying to think of an example uh, that's kind of well outside the usual, but you know, th- there are a lot of shows where they t- they'll take a, a character who's maybe a side character who's tangentially related to the show and it'll just be about them for an episode. Uh, now this does traditionally happen maybe in longer shows um, or shows that have been around longer. But for it to happen in this show is not something that is, like, mind-blowing or unexpected. Mandalorian is deeply connected to Book of Boba Fett, right? It launched Boba Fett. Boba Fett is a spinoff of The Mandalorian. So for The Mandalorian to feature as the lead in an episode is is not, like, unforeseeable. And I don't know. I, I guess I just think it's a little silly, to get worked up about it, um, you know, like take a step back, breathe out the anger, and and ask yourself, was this a good episode of Star Wars TV? Right? Was it Star Wars? Was it fun? And and if it was, then like, I, I guess I don't know why you need to to be upset. You know, I just get. Just trying to get a little zen here, get a little Star Wars zen, and just take take a breath and be like, hey, this was fun. You know, what does it matter? They could, they could take an episode of Book of Boba Fett and focus on Luke, and I'd be thrilled. Like, I don't care. Like, just show me some good Star Wars. Maybe I'm too laissez-faire for people, right? Maybe I'm at the wrong end of that spectrum. I don't know. But... <sighs> As long as it's not completely and entirely unrelated, I'm I'm for it. All
0: right. I think you and I have both long been of the belief that like more Star Wars, as long as it's good Star Wars, is it, it's like I see this as a complete win, right? Yeah, like I, I just want more good Star Wars, and if if the show was called Sands of Tatooine right would you be upset that they were going away from the boba fett storyline like i feel like a lot of what has got people says like i signed up to watch book of boba fett and boba fett wasn't in this episode it's like that's just the title of the of the series like it it doesn't it doesn't really matter like if you've ever read a book they will switch back and forth between storylines like star wars books in particular do this all the time yeah they bounce back and forth between the main storyline and a tangential storyline like this happens constantly it's not something to be upset about it was a fantastic episode well it was a bad episode of book of boba fett no it wasn't it was still a great episode of book of boba fett just because it didn't have boba fett in it doesn't mean it's a bad episode and it doesn't matter if it was the mandalorian season three episode one it was still great star wars it was great tv i loved everything about it i think it was a fantastic episode i had a ton of fun watching it who cares if boba fett wasn't in it boba fett's gonna be back next week It's not the biggest deal yeah. he's not dead he's not he's not gone from from canon,
1: right? And what we can look forward to, I think, uh, is likely a continued intertwining of the stories of Finnick, of Boba, and Din Djarin. I, I'm looking forward to Mando Season 3 when he reaches out to Boba Fett and Finnick Shand uh, for a little quid pro quo. Because you know at some point he's going to need some friends.
0: they go to try to take back mandalore yeah
1: right right exactly so um it's 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 all gonna come around right we're gonna get our our fair and deserved share of boba fett screen time that we paid for personally right uh so
0: (laughs) we demand from john favreau personally yes john favreau you owe me boba fett yes and not this, not this sissy Clone Wars Boba Fett. I want the mass murdering killer Boba Fett, right. the cold hearted oh, son of a gun that just slaughters people by the dozens. Oh wait, that's the Mandalorian.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. The Mandalorian is is definitely the uh, the more murderous character. Well, Boba Fett has I, I no just love just, for stormtroopers, uh, nor does now, nor or does anyone. For people who've who've wronged him, yes. Din Djarin just doesn't care
0: about anyone who he's getting paid to kill, basically. So this is probably the most pressing thing that the Star Wars community has come up with recently is that the Mandalorian is the extended universe Boba Fett, like the cold-hearted bounty hunter who's not scared to kill people, who hardly ever talks, who rarely removes his helmet. Like that is the extended universe Boba Fett. Yeah. It's the Mandalorian. The Boba Fett that we have, the reason why they didn't make this Boba Fett like the Mandalorian is because again... The only canon appearances of Boba Fett were from Clone Wars, right? I think he got six episodes in Clone Wars. In every episode in Clone Wars, he shows that he does not have an issue killing specific people that he feels that a person wrong him. He tries to kill Mace Windu, right? However, he shows concern for the well-being of his fellow clones when he's trapped in an escape pod with the other young trainees, right? And Aura Singh says she's going to kill them, and he does not want her to do that. He's supposed to execute Commander Pons and he can't do that. So Aura Singh has to do it. Like he shows time and time again that he is not a cold-hearted, remorseless killer. And it would be a huge departure. By the way, that story, Clone Wars, that was the last thing that Lucas directly had a hand in. Right? So that version of Boba Fett is the Lucas and Filoni version of Boba Fett. That is the canon Boba Fett. Right. So to now have him be a remorseless killing machine directly contradicts that and yeah you could retcon it as like oh something happened to him you know in his middle years and now he just enjoys slaughtering people by the dozens right but it was easier and made more sense for them to just introduce a new character that is the eu version of boba fett and have them do all the killing and them do all the slaughtering and then bring this boba fett and take the depth that they've given to the character and basically elaborate on that which is what they're doing and i think expectations are probably the biggest issue here, which I think you and I talked to us before. It seems like expectations are a lot of times the biggest issue.
1: Yes. You know, uh, I, again, I, I, feel like, I feel like a, a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of Zen is important here. Yet understand that it's, it's your desires that are at the root of your unhappiness. Uh, you're, you're projecting these, uh, these wants into the universe and by you, I don't necessarily mean you, the listener. You might be on our side here. I don't know. But, but you, the very unhappy Boba Fett viewer, I'm speaking to you directly, personally, right now, calling you by name. You're projecting what you wanted. And when reality falls short of that, you're getting upset. And what you have to understand is that it was, it was your desire in the first place that has led to your unhappiness. If you were open... things as they are you would not be unhappy so
0: so what you're saying if they were more like a jedi and less like a sith yes they would yeah so i go into all star wars stuff and i try to zero out my expectations right because i don't know what's going to happen and no matter how much i want something i can't make it happen right so what i try to do for every bit of star wars media i watch is i try to go in and i try to just watch it as it is and then i judge it based off how it is, right? Um, This has happened with the sequel trilogy, which is probably why I don't dislike them as much as some other people do. This has happened with Mandalorian, which is why I don't dislike the filler episodes. This has happened with Book of Boba Fett. It happened with Rebels. Like every single episode, like I go in and I try to just zero out my expectations and let the story be told to me by the people who made the story, right? And then once I have the full picture of the story, then I judge it based on the pros and cons of what was presented to me, not based off, Necessarily, what could have been. I like to headcanon stuff the same way everyone does. I like to think about what could have been the same way everyone does, right? But I feel like it's unfair to judge stuff off of, well, they could have pulled this from the extended universe, right? I still do it, especially with the sequel trilogy. Like, it's hard. It's hard for me to not be like, damn, I really feel like they could have done something better than they did, right? And it's hard. But when we're looking at the actual media itself, I feel like it's still unfair. Um, And I know as fans, it's impossible when you're disappointed in something to not be like, well, if they had just used this character or if they had just used this storyline. But at the same time, like especially on a first viewing, especially on a first viewing, like why not just let them tell you the story they're trying to tell you and then and then judge that instead. And the story that they're trying to tell us right now with Book of Boba Fett, I actually think is an intriguing one. And the interlude that we had with The Mandalorian, I thought was tons of fun. So extended universe aside, I have very much enjoyed at least three out of the five episodes we've had so far. Yeah. I have slightly less enjoyed two out of the two out of the five. But at the same time, you know, we have two more episodes left. And I said this on Twitter, but I have very, very high hopes for the last two episodes based off what they've given us so far. Dangerous. I mean, Filoni <laughs> co-wrote episode six. Yeah. So, you know... And come on, guys, it's, it's John Favreau, right? Like, if you look at John Favreau's works, okay, Iron Man, the movie Elf, right? Chef, John Favreau is very, very talented. And I'm not saying he can't do anything wrong, but John Favreau is very talented. If there has ever been a writer that you should trust to do justice to Star Wars, besides Dave Filoni, who is an executive producer on this show, right? If there has ever been someone you should trust, it would be John Favreau.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do expect to have a very enjoyable episode, whatever story it tells, uh, to look forward to next week.
0: Boba Fett just gets shot in the first two minutes of the episode and dies. And and uh, that's why they introduced Mandalorian last episode. Calling <laughs> out. Also, not real spoilers, because I just made that up. So if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, my God, they just spoiled episode six. That's we just made that up. I promise you. This is episode five only. No spoilers for episode six. We haven't even watched it.
1: That's right. That's right. We're waiting. You know, even though as as podcasters, of course, we get the the preview version. No, we yeah. don't. No, we don't. Um, John
0: Favreau called <laughs> me up and told me exactly what was going to happen in episode six. But that jerk. all right, so episode five.
1: Yes, fantastic
0: episode. Start start at the beginning, I suppose. I I think we have the, to uh, with Dinjarin uh, strolling through. I guess a, a a slaughterhouse is what it is. Yes, uh, in the in the pursuit of a
1: bounty. Classic Caba uh, Classic gangster. Story opening here, you know the the gangster in the slaughterhouse is like the most stereotypical crime lord that that you can have. I think it's in everything, but they it do plays it again here. It always it? plays it, well. Yeah. yeah, it's an easy way to make someone look creepy.
0: By the way, this was this episode was directed by Bryce Dallas Howard you guys uh, may know from The Heiress. She directed The Heiress in season two of The Mandalorian, which is the fantastic, fantastic episode that introduces Bo-Katan. She also, uh, if you know her as an actress, she is in the Jurassic World reboots. So if you know her from that, she's the daughter of Ron Howard. Uh, Ron Howard is the one who did Solo after the original two directors uh, took that movie in a very comedic path and uh, Lucasfilm was not a fan of it so they booted them out Ron Howard came in and in my opinion really saved that film I know some people don't like it a ton but I thought Solo was really fantastic and I'd be willing to bet that expectations were the root of a lot of people not liking Solo as well but that's neither here nor there so Bryce Dallas Howard how do you think she did on this episode director
1: wise Uh, I thought she did a great job Uh, I thought we got a lot of fantastic visuals and uh yeah I mean, that, that's a lot of what I judge a director on is how they how they set the scenes up for us. You know, I know obviously they're giving some guidance to the actors as well, but I largely hold the actors accountable for the portrayals of the characters and the director. I look a lot more at their their skill as a cinematographer and how they're setting the scene uh, and how the the themes are playing out in the visual space and the auditory space although to a lesser degree because my ears are just i mean we we know i'm not good at sound so we're going to leave that alone but uh but the visuals were so much fun uh we got we got a halo ring world which, which was awesome was by the so way i cool. love that yeah um yeah that was that was amazing and uh you know yeah we got we got the awesome the gangster scenes the classic gangster scenes opening this up the slaughterhouse uh, we got the uh, the gangster in the club. We got an elevator scene. <laughs> that was amazing. And I don't know about anyone else. I follow uh, Ming-Na Wen on Twitter, and her Twitter account is occasionally hilarious. Um, she in- she gave the character a name. Uh, she, so-and-so is a, a wealthy alien who, like most of us, is awkward in elevators. Yeah. Um, yeah, Just just great 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 opening you know we can talk about how she did uh in in the rest of the show as we go through it but i really enjoyed uh the opening scenes uh and and what kind of sets up the tone of the episode here dinjarin trying to find his place again
0: i love seeing dinjarin try to use the dark saber and be just totally untrained with swordsmanship and uh, still shows it's a very powerful, very effective weapon because he's able to pretty much slaughter all the Uh, But he also hurts himself in the process of doing it when he brushes the dark Darksaber up against his leg. Pretty serious injury. People were laughing that, like, the most serious injury that we've seen Din Djarin get is uh, one he inflicted upon himself, basically. Um, so he goes into the slaughterhouse, kills all the Clotunians, has a wonderful back and forth with uh, Kaba Baez before killing him. Yeah. Uh, strolls out, drops it off. I I really loved the scene of him walking into the club and seeing all the aliens at the table and, and them being like, Oh, we have another job for you. And him literally just being like, I don't care. Like, here's the head drops it. Like put that on ice, walks back out. The elevator scene is great.
1: Everything about the opening is like perfect of what I want to see the Mandalorian doing. This was a great reset for his character, right? We got to see a lot of different sides of his character, in Season 2 of The Mandalorian. And so what they're doing here, I think, is they're they're kind of taking a step, and they're resetting, and they're saying, yes, he cares about people. He has human connections. He is a whole person. But also, he is a badass, ruthless killer who will do whatever it takes to accomplish his goals. And we want to reset that before we... Before we see more of him in the future. And that for me. Was uh, just really really great. To have that kind of like. Back to episode one of the Mandalorian. He's still that person. He may have. He may have grown and added some depth. But he hasn't stopped being. The ruthless bounty hunter. And that's why I think. I think what you said about him being. The extended universe Boba Fett. Is such a great. uh, A great way to think about it um, because I think that's totally accurate. You know, my memories of reading uh, Boba Fett books as a kid, uh, this, this definitely plays much more closely, right? We get that, that beautiful line. Uh, Let's talk about our options. I can bring you in warm or I can bring you in cold. There's only two options. Just chilling. Um, And yeah, the, uh, the dark saber fight scene was great. The, that opening because we get we get a few of them, I guess i so i should I should clarify the opening scene of him attempting to use the dark Sabre when one of the Klaatuinians bites his hand and makes him drop his blaster uh was really good because it harkens back to rebels, right when Sabine is attempting to learn to wield the dark saber, and uh she is very, very frustrated. Because Jedi make it look so easy. And what we find is that lightsabers are not... They're not easy to wield, right? There's a reason that only Jedi wield them. And it's not just because they're insanely expensive to manufacture. Because kyber crystals are incredibly rare and difficult to harvest. That's one reason, you know? Uh, But secondarily, like... A, it's extremely easy to injure yourself with them, as we saw. Right, that's the first thing they want to establish. Wielding a lightsaber is is as dangerous to you as it is to your opponent. Two, they're not like, they're not two pounds. The hilt may weigh two pounds or less. That's that's accurate, but the blade itself has a weight, uh, and that is is portrayed throughout Star Wars as being both a physical and a metaphysical weight. The blade wants to do things, right? And it will fight you. And if you fight it, then you will lose. Uh, Especially if you're not a Jedi. Uh, And if 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 you aren't able to connect to it and to be in harmony with it, then that weight will only grow as you attempt to force it. Uh, especially if you're not a sith uh and so it's it's really it's really i think fun to see that played out in live action as he's you know he's attempting to swing it and he's dragging it across the floor he's not doing that on purpose he's doing that because he's having trouble lifting it um because it because it pulls against you uh and that's portrayed super well in rebels where Sabine just struggles and she's she's you know two handed just sort of like swinging it. Like, like she has no idea how to wield it, uh, and and so that's something we don't see a lot of in Jedi training sequences because Jedi have that innate powerful connection to the Force that allows them to to connect to a lightsaber much more easily. Um, this comes back to the original trilogy when Lucas, and so there's a lot of techno babble explanations that have sprung up over the decades. The reason that they were wielded as if they were heavy in the original trilogy is because Lucas wanted them to to be like, these were space knights wielding space swords. And he had this impression that like a sword is like 40 or 50 pounds of steel. And so lightsabers should have that same heft. And so that's how the fight sequences were choreographed, as if they were wielding 40 or 50 pounds of steel in their hands. Um, And, you know, we also, you know, Since then, uh, it's kind of been like, I think, community retconned that this was done, A, because Luke was untrained. He didn't have the lightsaber training to fight like the prequel trilogy Jedi did at the time. Uh, And because Vader was holding back and Obi-Wan was old. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh you know and we also we also don't see most of Obi-Wan and Vader's fight on screen. We see only snippets of it. So we we miss all the uh the flips they were undoubtedly doing down the corridor. Yeah. And so Luke only sees what's safe for him to see because you know Obi-Wan doesn't want him doing flips with a lightsaber. He'll cut his he'll cut his arm off, right? That, that's not good. That could be dangerous. This is, he'll end up like Anakin. This is all a training uh exercise for Obi-Wan. So that's that's how we sort of community I think kind of that's my that's my headcanon. Um and I think it's it's not dissimilar to a lot of people's headcanon. And then Lucas made the conscious decision in the prequel trilogy to show Jedi fighting at the height of their power. So those lightsabers still worked the same way, but they were now he's now showing us what force assisted combat looks like. And this is this is, you know, from lucas this is how he wanted lightsabers to be portrayed and so for a non-force wielder to wield it this is totally accurate and anyone who has a problem with it is gonna have to take it up with lucas so you know good luck
0: i've seen a couple of uh a couple of linkages to this in the sequels where they said like that's why finn can barely beat a stormtrooper when he's trying to use the lightsaber. Uh, and he basically has to get saved because he's not really capable and he's getting beat down by this just random stormtrooper, pretty bad stormtrooper, but a random stormtrooper nonetheless. Yeah. And they said, it's actually why uh, Kylo Ren has such a heavy style of fighting with his saber is because he is feeling the draw of the light side of the force and he's resisting it. And so he is struggling more. He has not fully given himself over to the dark side and he's not come back to the light side either. So he is at conflict and therefore everything that he does that is force assisted takes way more effort for him than it does for someone who is just purely of the light or purely of the dark.
1: This thinking about this actually does so much to improve the first episode of the sequel trilogy for me. And I think what's going to happen here is that once again, Filoni is going to step in to make the star Wars movies less bad. Once again, we
0: can certainly hope so. We can <laughs> certainly hope so, but he is saving. Uh, spe- them. Speaking of speaking of Felonia, I read a really interesting interview with Bryce Dallas Howard the other day, and I wish I could remember where I found this. And it was actually talking about her uh, directing the Mandalorian, but it, it ties into how she directed this episode as well. And what she said is that her job as a director coming on the set is not to implement her vision. She's like, I've watched star Wars. I've watched clone Wars. But she's like, I don't know nearly as much as Filoni and Favreau do. And they're so in tune that they have a very specific vision and they outline the vision for me. And she said, my job as a director is to make that vision come to life on the screen, not to necessarily implement her own ideas about how characters should be or how things should be. Now, obviously, she shoots it the way she wants because she's the director, but the actual characterization and vision is comes from Filoni and, and Lucas. And she showed a picture of a series of notes that Filoni had given her yes. uh, on how Mandalorian culture works. And it's like a full page with like diagrams on it of notes that Filoni had given her like this is how Mandalorians work. And she was showing that being like this is what they give me and then I go out there and I basically put it on the screen. And that's that's really, really fascinating to me because that's a lot of what the directors for the original trilogy of star Wars movies did as well. Like Irwin Kirshner and stuff like that. Like those guys didn't really know star Wars, but Lucas asked them to come in and head these movies up as directors. And they did, but their job was to put Lucas's vision on screen. Right. And Filoni and Favreau have kind of taken over that mantle. And I love that they did that. And I love that Bryce Dallas Howard understands and accepts that. And in fact, is enthusiastic about it because you know, we can all we can all ask ourselves, despite literally saying earlier in the episode that we shouldn't do this. What would have been like if Favreau and Filoni were in charge of the sequels? Do you think we would have gotten the same sequels that we got? I don't think we would not have even close. I don't think we would
1: have. Right? I think we would have gotten some very different stories.
0: Now, again, can't judge the sequels on what could have been because that's unfair. But we can judge the sequels as they are. And they're still not particularly tremendous. Now, I enjoy Star Wars. I rewatched them again recently. They're not the ho- most horrible things ever. But I love that Bryce Dallas Howard outwardly expressed that, that she was like, look, this is just kind of how it is. They know a ton about Star Wars. They're so in tune. Even Favreau has said that whenever he has an idea, he bounces it off Filoni first because Filoni would be like, no, 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 you can't do that. Here's the reasons why. Or, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Here's how we can link it to other media like the Darksaber training, like the Darksaber fight. If you haven't watched Rebels, and I don't know how you could listen to the show and have not watched Rebels because it is so good. Trials of the Darksaber. I didn't appreciate it as much on the first watch through, but the second time I rewatched Rebels, it immediately became one of my favorite episodes. Not in the least because the scene with Kanan and Sabine, where they're actually training, and Kanan finally draws out of Sabine what it is that's holding her back, is the voice acting is impeccable. The, The shot is incredible. Everything about that scene is phenomenal. It's some of the most emotional storytelling that I think you can ever see in Star Wars, when it's just two people training together. Like it really is fantastic. But everything that you said about the Darksaber being heavy. She visualizes or she, she vocalizes that. She literally says oh it's heavier than I expected. Kanan literally says you're fighting against the blade. The blade is energy. The force throws, flows through it. You have to allow your thoughts to be directed by the blade. You have to give yourself into it. And everything that she goes through. She's a Mandalorian. She's not a Jedi. Perfectly mirrors what Din Djarin goes through. And even what's really interesting is the way the armor is walking him through the forms. One, two, three, four. Yeah. Almost perfectly mirrors Kanan walking Sabine through the forms. Such a fantastic callback.
1: She's she's counting in Mandalorian, which is great as well. She's counting she's counting one, two, three, four in Mandalorian. So that's I didn't quite know what she was saying the first time through. I had to look it up, but that's I think it's fantastic.
0: It is such a cool throwback. It is such a cool scene and it explains so much about these weapons, about how they're used, about how they're forged, because in that episode as well, uh, we get an explanation of Tar Vizsla and how he became, you know, how he forged the sword and how they use it to unite the people and everything. You got to watch it because this is a, there's a direct link from that episode to this episode, and it's a very strong link and it explains so much. And if you haven't seen it, then you're kind of wondering like, oh, why is it so heavy? The armor kind of explains it but not quite as well as Kanan an actual Jedi does. And the thing is Sabine has a little bit easier time than Din Djarin does because she's already been training with the Jedi for a long time. Actual Jedi, meaning Ezra and Kanan. Right. Uh, Din Djarin has given a baby Jedi away to another Jedi, and that's the only that's the only time he's ever seen them. And he didn't see the whole scene of Luke using the using the lightsaber to cut through all the droids, right? He just sees Luke walk in the door and all the droids are dead. So he has no experience with this at all. He doesn't know what's possible.
1: I mean, he probably rewatched it on it, it was recorded on the cams, but uh, you know, anyway. Anyway, yeah, the point is even if he's seen that, trying to recreate that with no real training is is how you end up slashing your own leg uh and <laughs> with a, with a very painful burn. So you know, the only non-Force user that I can think of that we see effectively wield a lightsaber is General Grievous, who, you know, is, is a droid, essentially, in regards to his limbs, and therefore is able to employ far more strength than any human could bring to bear. And even and then... he has
0: to use multiple lightsabers.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he, even then, he's not really a great lightsaber combatant. He's He's basically... Using, like, overwhelming numbers of lightsabers in order to try to keep up with Jedi. And
0: he was trained by Count Dooku, who's considered the greatest lightsaber duelist of all time. Yes.
1: Second only to uh, Anakin Skywalker.
0: So, Well, in the end, yes, because his powers have doubled since they last met, Count. Yes.
1: Twice the pride, double the fall.
0: But... <laughs> Fantastic. This was also a whole love letter to the prequels, wasn't it? The whole oh, yeah. episode is a love letter to the prequels.
1: It truly is. It truly is. We get a we get so many great Phantom Menace uh callbacks uh that I it's it's just a, it's a ton of fun. So let's let's move on. We've got a lot of episode left to cover here.
0: Well, uh, we need to talk about the rest of how you know, yeah. Tar Vizsla uh they explain the armor basically goes through the whole uh spiel about what the dark saber is, how it came to be. She tells him all about it. Turns out that one uh, of Tar Vizsla's descendants is actually here. Paz Vizsla, the big, huge Mandalorian, the heavy Mandalorian from uh, from season one of the Mandalorian. He's apparently the only survivor along with the armorer. Um, he is actually a Vizsla. So he is related to pre-Vizsla, who was voiced by John Favreau. Paz Vizsla was actually voiced by John Favreau as well in season one. I don't know that John Favreau did the voice again he did. for this one. It sounded a- he, he did? He did. From, from what I thought I saw in the credits that he did the voice. So... So there you go. So there's another Vizsla. This Vizla is not particularly happy that uh Dinjarin has the dark saber. Challenges him to a duel for it. Is beating him until he picks up the dark saber. Yes. <laughs> and then everything becomes much harder because he's not ready to do it either. So the armor, as she does, asks them if they've ever had their helmets removed. Paz Vizsla has not. Dinjarin, bless his honest soul, can't lie. He can. And uh, and says and says yes, it has been. And she says, well. The only way you can atone is by bathing in the waters of the, what is it, the mine of Mandalore? The Mandalorian mines? Yeah. The waters beneath the mines of Mandalore. And he's like, uh, those have been destroyed. Because we saw an incredibly chilling flashback mm-hmm. of the Night of a Thousand Tears, which is when the Empire finally decided that Mandalore just wasn't worth it anymore. And they were just going to wipe it out entirely. We see the Thai bombers going in and basically drops what looked like nuclear weapons onto the planet completely wiping out the surface of the planet and then we have an incredible shot of the imperial security droids which we know as ktso from rogue one uh we have a shot of them walking through it was very terminator-esque wasn't it It there's been a couple of callbacks to terminator in these in these book of boba fett episodes it's very terminator-esque they're walking through the wreckage and just killing the survivors and that was i love that flashback i thought that was one of the darkest things we've ever seen in star wars
1: it was yeah and i i am very excited to see more mandalorian focused storylines in star wars media going forward because i think they're one of the most interesting cultures that has been set up but but there's been a lot there's a lot that is open to be covered um you know i'd, I'd love to see it someday a uh, a flashback series that goes back and and covers the origin of the dark saber and the war between the jedi and the mandalorians there's there's a lot that that they could uh, that they could explore in that corner of the universe I very much want to see that I love the
0: line that Kanan says to Sabine in Trials of the Darksaber where Sabine uh, uses like a Mandalorian the braces and she uses a trick to wrap Kanan up in like this wire and the the, all the stuff that she has was made to fight Jedi Mm -hmm. right and Kanan breaks out of the thing and puts her on the ground and is like you need to understand the Jedi won that war. We beat Mandalorian. These tricks will keep you alive once or twice, but they will not protect you always. You have to train. I love, man, Trials of the Darksaber is such a good episode. It is a good episode. Everything everything about it is fantastic. Highly recommend you guys watching it. Spoilers for Trials of the Darksaber. Whoops, a little bit late for that if you haven't seen it. But please, I don't I don't think we spoiled the actual main story point in Trials of
1: the Darksaber was, yet, which we won't. Yeah, bear. when you get to it, like it's there's not going to be a surprise as to what's happening. The, the previous episode tells you what they're doing. So there's no spoilers.
0: So the armor as a the armor as a character is basically a stand in for Kanan for Din Djarin. He ex, or she explains the history of the Darksaber. She explains what happened to the Mandalorian people. She she basically blames it on Bo-Katan uh, saying yeah, that Bo-Katan outright. didn't
1: win the Darksaber. She was given it. She calls her a cautionary tale, which I yeah. think for a Mandalorian is like possibly a a a dire like duel to the death worthy insult. So
0: you had an interesting theory that you'd been reading up on about who the armor might possibly be if it's not a unique character.
1: Yeah, so in this uh you know I guess I don't know who originated this but it was it was revived on Reddit. Uh there was a a redditor Gulbulko, uh who had who had I guess brought this up at some point. Uh, last year, and it's kind, of, it's kind of gained a little bit of traction again recently. So, in the Clone Wars, uh, as a, a member of Death Watch who, who serves under Darth Maul when he takes Mandalore, uh, there is a Mandalorian Super Commando named Rook Cast. And she was the second of, uh, it was Gar Saxon? I believe it was Gar Saxon. Now I'm drawing a blank. Yeah, she was second in command to Gar Saxon. Yeah, so she's second in command to Gar Saxon. He served under. Uh, he he worked with um, Darth Maul, and uh, Darth Maul uh, ultimately claims the uh, the dark saber by right of combat, and uh, so the uh, the Death Watch uh, serves him. And uh, help him in his uh, his bringing of the criminal underworld to heal. And uh, help him to essentially kind of become the power behind the throne on Mandalore. Uh, or essentially the throne itself. And, you know, he's just not the face because... Let's face it. <laughs> he's Darth Maul. Um, but uh, for all intents and purposes, he's ruling the planet. She uh, she at various points uh, confronts Ahsoka Tano, and uh, just uh, is engaged in all kinds of uh, battles. Uh, ultimately, culminating in the siege of Mandalore, uh, at the end of which she is captured, and we don't hear from her again. Um, but she, you know, at, at Rook cast knows a great deal about the dark saber, has a deep respect. For the rights of combat to claim uh, leadership on Mandalore. um, Because she remained loyal to Darth Maul through everything. Despite him not being a Mandalorian. Despite everything else, she remained loyal to him to the bitter end. So she was a devoted uh, traditional Mandalorian warrior. Uh, Highly skilled, she survived engagements with clone troopers and Jedi uh, and other Mandalorians uh, repeatedly. Uh, Let's see what else. Um, I I don't know if there's... It's it's a lot of circumstantial stuff. Uh, So the horned helmet is considered to be a potential tie. Uh, We know Gar Saxon had a horned helmet, although the design was rather different than the one that that the armorer wears. Um and it's considered a possible tribute to Darth Maul, who, uh, of course, uh, is a horned a horned being. So there's there's a bunch of kind of circumstantial evidence and uh, given her knowledge of Mandalorian culture, her disdain for Bo Katan, her uh you know, the the way that she revered traditional Mandalorian culture and the rights of combat it's, it's circumstantial, but we know that Filoni likes to bring characters back. He likes to tie things back. If it was going to be somebody, cast is a believable choice. Yeah. It's a stretch, but it's believable.
0: Yeah. I mean, I said that when you were telling me the theory earlier. I was like, ah, maybe. Maybe. Out of all the people it could be, she's definitely
1: one of them. It's more believable than, than it being Sabine. Oh, it's definitely so, not Sabine. Yeah, there, there's, there's no not way enough explosions it's... for it to, or paint for it to be Sabine. No, so.
0: Sabine's not that calm, and Sabine doesn't revere Mandalorian culture that way. So
1: that's true, all all true. So, uh, so yeah, so Rook cast, um, go. You know, you'll you'll have to to watch or rewatch the Clone Wars if you want to get a sense for who Rook cast is, and if you think that she's believable as the armor all these years later.
0: And the armorer uh, also tells Din Djarin that his, uh, his Beskar spear is something that should be destroyed. Yeah, she's like, uh, this was made basically to pierce Beskar armor. Um, we make armor out of Beskar. We don't generally tend to make weapons out of it, despite the fact that she contradicts herself because she did make whistling birds out of Beskar. But I assume that whistling birds are not made to kill other Mandalorians there. Whereas the Beskar spear, I think, was pretty much the way it's being used and the way it's insinuated it was pretty much designed to kill
1: Mandalorians. Yeah, she's also got a, uh, a Beskar hammer as we see her blocking the Darksaber with it. But that's a tool. It's not a weapon unless she happens to need to use it as a weapon. So The, the armor is definitely one of those cult leaders uh, where the rules apply to her followers a little more than they apply to her. Um,
0: well, regardless, Dinjarin doesn't seem to mind. He's got the dark saber anyways. So he, yeah, he, uh, gives her the spear to melt down. She melts the spear down and I believe she makes a little suit of chainmail mail for, for little Grogu. He says, uh, he says, I want some armor for one specific foundling. Yes. And, uh, and she ties it up in a nice little Grogu shaped package. And, uh, and Dinjarin says that he's, he's going to go off and going to go off and give it to Grogu.
1: Yeah. We don't, we don't know for sure what it is we've not seen it at all yet um but yeah it's it's curious i'm i'm excited to see what it is i'm excited to see grogu again i'm i'm curious what the mandalorian will find
0: i i have a feeling um i have a feeling this actually takes place at the end of the episode after finnick has come to ask him to be part of boba's army but uh, I have a feeling some people are concerned that like next episode is going to be Din Djarin going to see Grogu. I actually got the impression that it was going to be an explanation for why Din Djarin isn't in the next episode when Boba probably could have used him. I guess we'll have to see on Wednesday when that comes out. But that's kind of the impression I got from that, that he was saying, oh, first I have to go see a friend. He's going to be gone for an episode to address the questions of like, man, Boba could have probably really used Din Djarin in this next
1: episode. And he's not there. I, I like where your head's at. Uh, I think it would be great if we get no Dinjar in episode six and he shows up in episode seven. We'll see. Yeah. But I, that's, that's kind of what I'm thinking. So
0: anyways, he, uh, he gets thrown out because he has had his helmet removed and he can't cleanse himself because the mines are destroyed and probably radioactive. So the armor tells him to leave, which is kind of crazy because there's only two of them left. You would think that they'd be happy to have another one, but she is like you said, a cult leader, which is definitely crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So she cast him out. He has to take a starliner to Tatooine, uh, and <laughs> the scene of him boarding the starliner and the droid being like, uh, "Sir, you can't bring your weapons with you. You have to check those." And him just like unloading every weapon that he has. He even pulls the "I'm Mandalorian. Weapons are part of my religion." line out. Yeah, and the droid's like, "Don't care." He has to put the dark saber in there, all of his bullets, all of his guns, all of his bombs, everything. He has to load into it. Very funny scene.
1: Uh, to me, I, I really enjoyed watching him just dump everything into his suitcase. Yeah, no, that was that was definitely a nice a nice moment of levity after uh, him being cast out of the uh, the Mandalorian cult that raised him. So uh, and I think it's, you know, I I think we're going to learn more about these. Uh, I, I've heard them referred to as both Death Watch and the Children of the Watch. Uh, I think we're going to probably learn a lot more about them in the next season of The Mandalorian, and, and it may end up being for the best that he has cast out uh, because I have a feeling that they're, I mean, look, they raised him to be who he is today. These aren't nice people. This is a Mandalorian cult, uh, and there's, there's nothing soft about them. Uh, so it, it may be for the best. Uh, if he is to be continue to be a protagonist that he is not directly associated with them.
0: Yeah. And, uh, and it'll allow him to hang out with Mandalorian's that are a little bit cooler. It'll allow him to hang out with Boba Fett and Bo Katan. Although we don't really know specifically what Bo katans story is going to be. She seemed pretty upset that Den had the dark saber uh, yeah. at the end of season two. But so he goes to visit Peli Motto, uh, because she has apparently sent him a, a message saying that, uh, that she has a starship for him. Um, And there's a womp rat that is that is attacking a BD droid, the little BD droid from Jedi Fallen Order, Mm -hmm. uh, which is which is a video game that I try as I might. I just have not been able to get into like the Dark Souls style combat that is that game. Uh, So I just resigned myself to basically reading the summary of the story online and (laughs) actually a really fantastic story. Absolutely a great addition to current canon. Uh, Cal Kestis is the Jedi main character and that his droid is a little BD unit. Um and I think this is the first time on screen we've seen the BD unit. So it's nice that they pulled some pulled some references from that game which I think the game is pretty universally loved especially among people who like dark souls style combat. But as a shooter
1: player myself it was kind of
0: difficult to get into.
1: Yeah, I've always felt the same way about the uh, the Dark Souls games. Uh and so I did not did not even attempt Fallen Order. I said that, that one's not for me. Um But yeah, so uh <laughs> so he walks in, shoots the the womp rat right as it is attempting to kill Pelimoto, and she, speaking for the audience, what an entrance! Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So he he arrives at at the speed of plot as he does. Part of me wonders if Pelimoto. So if
0: you've if you guys have ever watched Scrubs, you'll know that there's like the janitor character, mm-hmm. and in the in the script they would not write lines for the janitor. They would just be like, whatever the janitor says. So it would be like, the script would be like, you know, Zach Braff says this, the girl says this, the other character, you know, Turk says this, and then the janitor's thing would be whatever the janitor says. And then he would just improv like all of his lines because he would just like make up random bull bull bullcrap. Sometimes I feel like that's what she does in this. Like, she just like says things and I'm like, I... I was like, I find that hard to believe that that was written in the script. Like, like her talking about dating uh, a Java and stuff. I'm like, I it, to me, it just seems like she just like improvs this stuff. And especially like the way the Mandalorian looks at her when that stuff is happening. It's like, it's just very funny to me. She's a great character. I feel like she's
1: a really fun addition to the universe. She is. She is. And actually, that would be entirely believable because he when he says that, you know, she'd sent him a message, she literally looks like she has no idea what he's talking about. Like as if... She has not heard his lines before. like she She's either just that good at controlling her facial expressions. Or she literally didn't know what his line was.
0: And then she's like, oh, yeah, the message uh, that I sent you. That's what I do. I find ships. You have money? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Like I, that definitely felt improv. Not in a bad way, but just like in a like she is actually that scatterbrained. Like that she might she might literally have done this and then completely forgotten about it. I did
0: see a weird theory that she actually didn't send him a message that uh, someone else sent him a message to like lure him there, but I'm not entirely sure that that really makes sense, right? Because like if it was Finnick or something, if Finnick knew how to get a hold of him, she could have just reached out to him and like, Hey, we need your help. And I'm sure he would have showed up. So I don't know that that's, I feel like that's inventing a conspiracy where there doesn't need to be one. I think she's just scatterbrained as heck and, and forgets that she does her own things.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I think that's adding layers of conspiracy that would achieve nothing. <laughs> so Very little. Yeah.
0: So anyways, the ship that she has for him is incredible. It's an old N1 Starfighter, which you guys will obviously know from The Phantom Menace. The probably, in my opinion, at least the most beautiful Starfighter design that we've ever seen. Uh, George Lucas's stated edict when they designed these ships was that he wanted something that was like excessive. He wanted something that was aesthetic, right? All the designs we've seen so far, they look cool, but they're brutish. They're military-esque, right? The TIE fighters, the X-Wings, like, they look like military fighters. He wanted something that looked luxurious almost to show the excess that Naboo had during the time of the Republic compared to what people had during the time of the Empire. So that's why the N1 Starfighter is so clean and shiny and, you know, extended, like dragged out is a lot of it was done more for appearances to make it look nicer and to differentiate it from the stuff that followed canonically uh, or chronologically in the Empire era.
1: Yeah, and they are, they are pretty. They definitely look... I mean, they, they do not match the X-Wing aesthetic at all, right? It is, it is two clearly different eras uh, side by side when we, when we see them side by side later. Um so yeah we get we get a brief montage of them building the N1. We get the uh, the Jawas coming in and <laughs> the best interaction uh regarding the Jawas when Pelimon is explaining how she got these parts. I hey, just tell the Jawas what I want and they find them. They they find them? Where? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Look, I don't
0: ask questions. Yeah. I loved everything about this shipbuilding scene. I loved the interactions with the Jawas. I loved how much Trekno Babble. They basically put into this. Yeah. Like they're just saying words and those words don't really actually mean anything. Like for the most part, they're just like made up parts and made up technology. Uh, But the way they carry the conversation back and forth, like did that not very much remind you of like Star Trek, the next generation. It was, it was they're super just saying, Star like, Trek. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, like the, the core reactor and the dilithium crystals. And like, you know, it's just, it's Trek, babble. They, they just say some technology stuff in a way. And like it, you know, it it it. I loved it. I loved every single bit of the entire scene where they're building the ship. I was
1: actually surprised that that Peli didn't tell him that she was just going to reverse the polarity on something. Right. Yeah, I was expecting them to say something
0: about that, or say something
1: about a dilithium
0: crystal at some point, just for a throwback. But
1: yeah. Uh, so the we do get uh, the metal bar that the pair of Jawas bring toward the Starfighter is actually a duplicate. Of the one that Han Solo uses to try and slow the walls of the Death Star's trash compactor. Uh, Which, you know, if you think back, just the Death Star having a trash compactor was a great, like, touch. In that movie, it was just like, yeah, like, they got to have some uh, place to throw stuff away. And why would they not have a, a trash compactor?
0: Fits the story. Yeah. And it fits the science. So it's perfect. Yeah. The perfect marriage. Uh, they, they finally finished building after he, after he has the, uh, he has the job was go and get him some more stuff. And he's, he's concerned about where they got it. And she's like, do you really want to know? And he's like, yeah, I do. Which I also liked that, you know, normally in stories like this, they just like hand wave away, like, Oh, you don't want to know. And that's basically telling the audience, like, we don't feel like coming up with, we don't feel like coming up with, uh, with where we got this from, but he cuts through. Out. He's like, no, I really do want to know. And they, they lead they bring the Pike syndicate into it. Um, And this is another connection to the Boba Fett story itself. But they say they cut it off of a Pike Spice Runner. And she says, man, it's been so shitty since the Pikes got here. It has totally ruined everything. The authorities are scared of them. No one wants to cross them. The Pikes are messing everything up. That's the first connection to the Boba Fett story, where we know that the Pikes are, are more than just a problem for Boba Fett. They're a problem for all the people. So I appreciated that. But then they eventually go to the test flight. And I think the test flight may be one of my favorite scenes, the entire test flight, be one of my favorite things in all of star Wars TV so far.
1: It was really good. It was really good. And it was, it was just such a huge loving tribute to, uh, the pod racing from the phantom menace as well. They, um,
0: he flies through Beggar's Canyon, first off, which Beggar's Canyon, you guys will remember, is from the Padre scene in The Phantom Menace. Yes. Uh, and if you look at the comparisons between the two, they really did a great job of reproducing. You know the little ramp that Anakin goes off of and his on accident? He shatters the do-not-enter wooden posts that are across it? That's still there, but the posts still shattered. Uh, all the little huts that are built into the walls are still there. I mean, everything about the scene is just fantastic. I love that whole thing. I love when he finally goes up into orbit and he flies past the Starliner and he sees the same Rodian child from earlier. There's a little fan theory going out there that the Rodian child is actually the uh, uh, Rodian from Star Wars Resistance, which is I was talking about Scrubs earlier. It's actually uh, Donald Faison is the voice of the Rodian in Star Wars Resistance, the uh, the the racer, the star racer and he plays turk and scrub so that's a weird connection that i just made right there totally on accident but uh, <laughs> there's a theory that that Rodian child seeing that uh in one starfighter fly past um and remarking on how awesome it is that that is what prompted him to become a racer later on and and move out to the titan resistance by the way we've never talked about that it's not as bad as people say it is uh, i will say that i, I did but, watch but it's the not entire great thing. No, it's not great, especially compared to Rebels and Clone Wars. Uh, it's a bit of a letdown, but it is—it is that one is a kids' show. Uh, like Rebels and Clone Wars, you're kind of like, oh, they're a kids' show, but like a lot of people die, and like yeah. it's pretty dark. Uh, Resistance is kind of or a kids' show, and it doesn't end. Like they just they just like end it in the middle of a story, and they just like never carry on the rest of the story too, which is crazy.
1: I I started watching that one with my daughter, um, and. She wanted to go back to watching Clone Wars and Rebels. So
0: it's not even great for a kid's show. Filoni was almost entirely hands-off for that show, (laughs) which I think is a lot of the problem with it. And the animation was an extreme departure from what we were used to. Clone Wars animation in itself is a bit of a departure. Rebels animation is a bit of a departure from Clone Wars. Resistance is like a full-on departure. Um, And I think that almost by itself may have been a bit too much. but just the the levity of resistance is of a much higher level than either Clone Wars or Rebels. And I think that also kind of kind of takes it down a notch. But again, it's not as bad as people say it is. You should definitely give it a watch through once. It does contribute a little bit to the story. You get to meet Phasma. Uh, you get to meet a couple of other characters. Poe Dameron is in it. So, it, you know, it's not as bad as people say. You should definitely give it a watch at least once just just to get through it. I have not rewatched and
1: I don't know that I'm going to. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. I'll, I'll get to it. I, at mean, some I guess point. we
0: should, for the sake of completion, for Benito and Sons, right? Because it's only fair. To,
1: we're gonna. We're gonna have to at yeah. some point.
0: Yeah. Um, anyways, he he flies up. He flies next to the Starliner. He hilariously and almost immediately gets pulled over by two X-wings. Yes. Uh, and the first X-wing pilot we see, you may or may not recognize. This is a bit of the trivia. He is actually the body double for Luke Skywalker in. The finale of Mandalorian Season 2, they had Mark Hamill come back and do Luke Skywalker. And they also had a guy, I believe his name is Max Lloyd-Jones. Is that, uh, is that his name? He actually w- was That's, the yep. body for Luke Skywalker that they then like, CGI'd over his face. And he looks kind of similar to a young version of Mark Hamill anyways. Uh, so they actually gave him the role as the X-Wing pilot. He's the younger of the two. And uh it's Lieutenant Reed. Yeah, and he's he's given Din Djarin a ton of... A ton of issues about flying too close to a Starliner and uh, flying too fast and doing all these things. Flying without a beacon. Come on, and, man. And then we have a familiar voice come over the radio. <laughs> Captain Teva, the, the X-Wing pilot that we are perhaps most familiar with, who is hilariously somehow always around. And he recognizes Din Djarin's voice and he's like, say, buddy, uh, voice sounds mighty familiar. Do you used to fly a Razor Crest? And I love the scene where Din like looks over at him and he's got the Mandalorian helmet on. And you know Captain Teva is just looking at him. And he sees him. I loved everything about that scene. It it made me crack up so hard. But he's like, nope, I think you have the wrong guy. And Captain Teva's like, "Uh, I don't think so. We should talk. (laughs) (laughs) Can you answer some questions? And then he presses the sublight engines and just shoots out of there.
1: Yes, yeah. So those those speed mods uh, pay off. Um, We definitely get some you know, a, a good idea of the uh the the ridiculous level of speed that they have packed into this in one because Lieutenant Reed, the younger pilotist asks, How did he jump to how did he jump to light speed? He didn't power up his hyperspace engines. And uh Tevis replies, uh, those are his sublights.
0: <laughs> and then he's like, uh, should we should we report this? And Tevis like, Do you really want to be filing paperwork all day? And, uh, or was it Reed is like, nope. And he was like, great. (laughs) And just move on with it. But I really, it was, it, that whole scene is just tremendous. I love, you know, I love everything about flying. Anytime there's anything about flying in star Wars, it's like immediately elevated in my eyes. Um, but this scene in particular, there's a shot where they have one X wing on either side of the N one starfighter and the N one starfighter in the center. That may be one of my favorite shots from all of star Wars. It's just such a beautiful juxtaposition that we haven't seen before of the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy sitting right next to each other and i love that shot so incredibly much
1: yeah it was good it was a good shot it really did highlight the uh, the shifting of the eras and um the the kind of the design aesthetics of uh, of the two trilogies and i mean i don't know i never get tired of seeing x-wings in space uh but this i think this is the best i've felt about the n ones in space. You know, I I kinda hadn't thought about them in a long time. This was a, this was a nice surprise for them to bring it back. And it was such a great scene. Uh it, it was nice to know that Dan enjoyed it as much as we did. He lands back at the uh the spaceport and he tells Pelimoto that it was Wizard. Which is yet another Phantom Menace callback. Uh Kitster, one of one of uh young Anakin's friends Tells Annie that the pod racer looks so wizard. Uh, so. Bringing it back. Bringing back yeah. wizard. He's 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 reclaiming it. So, yeah. Uh, it was, the scene really was wizard. It was great.
0: It was great. And then he lands and uh, and Pelly says, hey, by the way, a friend of yours came by. Told her I didn't know where you were. I turned on the security system for the hangar. And he says, oh, did did she tell you her name? And then Finnick answers and is like, it's me. Jumps down. Pelley gets pissed at her droids. Is like, what? I told you to turn the security system on and uh, and leaves to walk around. And Finnick basically says, hey, man, we could use your help. This is the part that takes place at the end. So, you know, the test flight and this are the only parts that take place at the end of episode four from last week. Everything else took place concurrently to it uh, or even before it. Um, mm-hmm. So she says, hey, we could use your help. We need some muscle and he says uh, yeah I'll do it and in fact it's on the house like I owe you guys you help me out I'll help you out but first I got to go visit a little friend and that's obviously so this is again this is the point that I said earlier that I think that him visiting a little friend is going to mean that he's not around next episode uh some people think that it could mean next episode we get another Mandalorian episode of him going to visit uh of him going to visit Grogu now there's a couple of conflicting theories about what's going to happen some people have said that two episodes is not enough time to to really give full full value to the war that Boba Fett is going to start with the pikes. Um, and that there's a, there's a theory that the Mandalorian season three is all going to be on Tatooine and it's all going to be about this war with the pikes and that this is literally serving as just a transition period, uh, to explain why the Mandalorian is on Tatooine with Boba Fett. And that's what that's going to be. I'm not entirely sure. I wouldn't necessarily mind that. I think that'd be pretty cool. So the idea is that season three of the Mandalorian is on Tatooine. I saw someone posted this on Reddit the other day, but they were like, uh, Din Djarin is King Arthur and Boba Fett is Lancelot and King Arthur is helping Lancelot, uh, secure his kingdom right now so that Lancelot can then come and help Din Djarin secure his, which is going to be Mandalore. So there's the idea that season three of the Mandalorian is going to be Din Djarin helping Boba Fett secure Tatooine. So then, season four, Boba Fett will go back with Dinjar into Mandalore and help him take that. I thought that was a pretty neat idea. I don't know for a fact that that's what it's going to be. I wouldn't be upset if it is, but you know, we'll know. There's only two episodes left. I think we'll figure out pretty quickly whether or not that's the direction it's going to take.
1: Indeed, indeed, we will. Um, and it's uh, it's it's curious. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of linkages that they've given us. You know, they've talked now specifically about Mandalore and Concordia, the moon of Mandalore, where. Death Watch was uh, was stationed, and where the children of the Watch were born. Uh, you know, Paz Vizsla was personally born on Concordia. You know, we don't necessarily know the armor herself. We know that she was there, I think. Um, but where, you know, whether she was born there or born on Mandalore, hard to say. Not sure if it's important or not. But uh, you know, Death Watch uh, essentially was formed because the warriors of Mandalore were exiled to the moon of Concordia. And uh, it was an agricultural settlement that was turned into a mining base uh, by these uh, these warriors. And, uh, and Death Watch was born in those mines. And so when they talked about the mines of Mandalore, I'm a little unclear if they're talking about mines on Mandalore's surface itself, as Din Djarin seems to believe. Or if they're actually talking about the mines on the moon of Concordia, which may in fact not be destroyed. The armor gives us no clues because when he says, "I thought the mines were destroyed," she simply replies, "This is the way." As she does, as she does. Uh, so it's up to him to figure to figure things out. She's not going to help him anymore. So we'll we'll see. Uh, I I feel like there's a potential uh, storyline there where he pursues redemption, and whether or not, and that that pursuit perhaps leads him to. Uh, understanding the history of Death Watch in a, in a new way, whether or not he eventually gets his redemption or decides he doesn't want it. I think there's a, a great potential storyline there. Uh, so yeah, there's there's a lot of directions that things could go. I do expect a pretty climactic uh, showdown between Fett and the Pikes at the end of this season. And I would be pretty surprised if Din Djarin doesn't have a major role to play in that showdown. Yeah,
0: I, w- I would think the same thing. Um, I'm reading about Death Watch right now and the Children of the Watch. And I, I think it's interesting. The Children of the Watch, uh, it has never been formally said that they are the remnants of Death Watch or they are a splinter group from Death Watch itself. Now, Death Watch was obviously they believed more in the old ways of Mandalore. So Duchess Satine from Clone Wars takes over Mandalore and basically transform them into a pacifist society. Which is what she wants. She believes war has almost destroyed their entire culture. Like they need to become pacifists in order to survive. Death Watch believes that war is part of Mandalorian culture and goes in the other direction. Um, Children of the Watch has never been formally said, although they were both on Concordia, which is where Death Watch was sequestered. They've never formally said that Children of the Watch is a descendant of Death Watch. However, the French version of The Mandalorian. They are not called Children of the Watch. They are actually called the Heirs of the Death Watch, which is interesting. So, when she's talking about Bo Katan, Bo Katan was part of Death Watch along with Pre Uh, She was the sister to Duchess Satine, indeed, and she splintered away from her. So this is an this is an interesting thing. Death Watch were considered extremist. The Children of the Watch seem to be the most extreme of the extremists.
1: Yeah, when a former Death Watch member calls you a cultist, yeah. You know, you're out there. You might be a little out there.
0: (laughs) But as far as we know, Death Watch is uh, when when Maul takes over, Death Watch basically splits into two groups and Bo-Katan takes one group. And I I don't believe they call themselves Death Watch anymore. And the other group basically becomes Maul's uh, Maul's Mandalorians, the puppet government uh, run by uh, Governor Almec and Mm -hmm. the red suited Mandalorians. And then those Mandalorians end up becoming the Imperial Super Commandos. Which are under the control of the empire, right? And that's when we get
1: Gar Saxon and Tiber Saxon and everything like that. Although we never see Rook Cast featured as an imperial super Commando, which is which is a notable exception because she did play a uh, key role uh, under Maul. And so what that implies to me is that she uh, may that, that just that that leads lends more credence to her as the leader. Of this extreme orthodox cult of Mandalorians. That's, I'm just throwing that that <laughs> theory back out there because I like it. It's well, fun. It's
0: possible. It's totally possible.
1: She she vanishes from the storyline. And mysteriously, years later, the children of the Watch are discovered. I don't know. I
0: don't know. Hey, if, if it ends up being the case, then I will give full credit to you and the person on Reddit for coming up with this idea. Yes. But, uh... All right, guys, uh, we have to rate the episode. So I think this is the best episode of the season. I think it's close between this and maybe episode four in terms of how much I enjoyed it. But the constant throwbacks to the prequels and a lot of the references to me elevate this one a little higher. I think this is a nine point five. I can't give it a 10 in good conscience because to me, a 10 uh, would mean it was like a masterpiece of storytelling um, which it's not really, the story is mostly just like background stuff. It's not ch- changing anything in terms of star Wars. You know, the previous tens that we've given to stuff, trials of the dark saber, uh, twilight of the apprentice, Jedi Knight. I mean, what else, what else, uh, CJ Mandalore, like those are tens. Uh, those are some of the best stories ever told in star Wars. I don't feel that this is one of the best stories ever told in Star Wars. I just think it's one of the most enjoyable episodes I've ever watched. So I think nine point five is fair.
1: Yeah. Uh you know, and for that for that reason, because this is essentially some people would almost call this episode a filler episode. What this is is an expository episode. This is giving us background info, setting up future events. It's not a turning point. Um like you said, it doesn't it doesn't dramatically change things one way or the other. I mean, it, it it does for the Mandalorian. He's been cast out. Um, but that's clearly not the climax of the episode. I don't think it, I'm not sure this episode really has a true story beat climax where things reach ahead and then descend. Um, I guess if they do, it's him being cast out, but yeah, it's, it's hard for me to say that this is as impactful. That feels more like something that's setting up future events than it did a true turning point in uh, in the universe. So I I got a, I'm torn between a nine and a nine point five.
0: Well, I mean, we gave what did we give? We gave last gave episode it a, a nine point five. Yeah, I was to say we gave last episode a nine, which was a really good episode, and we gave episode two a it nine, was. which was a really good episode. I think this was better than those two, but I don't think it was as good as the rescue,
1: which we gave a ten. So I think it firmly resides in the nine point five region. All right, I'll agree. And, uh, and we'll call it there, and we'll, and we'll see how things play out with uh, the next two episodes of Book of Boa Fett. We, very excited, but uh, we will see you
0: next week with Chapter 6, whatever that may bring. All right. May the Force be with you. And also with you.